This Guardian Family podcast is sponsored by Jump, the savings fund for children. To find out more, visit jumpsavings.com. Hi, this is Miranda Sawyer. Welcome to the Guardian's Family podcast. In this month's show, the problem of a high-achieving parent. Can you ever match up? Am I competing with her? Yeah, I want to be bigger than her. I want to be more well-known than her. I want to walk into a room and get all the attention before she does. Best-selling author David Nichols explains how the Beatles can keep a dad sane in his family playlist and breaking the biggest taboo, telling your friend you just can't stand their child. If it gets to the point where you happen to have a kid who's a cross between Johnny Rotten and Mad Max, you've got to be able to say to them, you know, your kid's a freak, you've got to do something about it. Do something about it? Yes, get that child an agent. This is the family podcast from The Guardian. And joining me in the podcast studio this month is The Guardian's fashion editor, Jess Cartner-Morley. Welcome, Jess. Hello. Hello. <laughs> You've got kids, haven't you? How old are they? I've got two, yes. Alfie's seven and Pad is three. And do you enjoy dressing them? Oh, yes. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, it's probably my hobby. <laughs> and are they aware of what you do? I mean, they're aware that you kind of work in fashion. Do they see your, your, your face in the byline and kind of go... That's mummy. Mummy's in the newspaper. Yes, they are aware of that. And yes, they know. Alfie calls my, my tasting clothes my fashion clothes rather than his normal clothes. Uh, <laughs> that's quite sweet. And what about your other half? I have a friend who, um, lovely man, absolutely lovely man, not a, a great one for style. And then once he got uh, together with his now wife, his style did alter. He was dressed by her. Do you do that with your other half? Yeah, I think I have. It's taken me a long time. We've been married nearly nine years now, and I think for the first few years he was very resistant to me, to me sort of bringing him in into fashion. He just sort of kept his wardrobe absolutely out of my territory. But gradually he kind of got interested, and now I do actually take him shopping. Oh, that's a make or break. I can't believe it. You take him shopping for clothes. That's worse than Ikea. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And you survived. He loves it. Yeah, he likes it better than me these days, I think. Whether they're household names or simply very good at what they do, having a high-achieving parent can be hard to deal with at any age. Karen Glazer spoke to three people who have struggled with their parents' success. Hello, I'm Josh Howey. I'm a comedian and a writer. General overachiever. (laughs) Let's get this out of the way super quick, uh, the most painful part of it. Yeah, my mum is, uh, her name is Lynn Franks. She might be known to some as the inspiration of AbFab. But she's my mum. In the 80s and 90s, she ran a very successful PR firm that uh, yeah, did the PR for lots of products and people and, and yeah, was very successful. And I mean, I, you know, I wasn't really conscious of all this going on. I was just aware that she was away a lot and working and, and making lots of money. Hi there, I'm, I'm Charlie and I'm 49 years old and I live in South East London with my daughter, who's 11 years old now. I've got one sister. We live the kind of very comfortable one of the better word bourgeois life in um, in Surrey, in a little suburb. It was very white, middle class. You know, so I went to private schools most all my life. Uh, my dad was a sort of top management, I suppose, at a family business. I've been a cycle career for a long time now, on and off about twenty years. My name's Jess Fernie. I'm a freelance curator and writer, and my father is an architectural historian. I've worked in this field for the past twenty years, and um, my I'm very aware of the fact that I work in the same field as um, my father. Um, he 
got a lectureship in Norwich in the 1970s, becoming director of the Courtauld in the 80s. Many of my peers uh, were taught by my father, and there was there's definitely a connection. Like most people I know are very much aware of who my father is and, and what position he holds. There was no external pressure to be successful from them. I think it's more of an implied thing because you look around at the world and seeing what where they came from and what they made of themselves. You know, the fact is I had every advantage given to me, you know, from day one in terms of schooling, in terms of contacts and everything. Surely that's my role is to take that further and to be as successful or, or not more successful. To be honest, and I don't want to like put them down they're just they were too focused on themselves I never really felt like I got a look in it wasn't like conversations taking me aside when like, what do you want to do when you're an adult or you can do anything or anything like that the point was that like it was just always implied if I wanted to I could do anything yeah. you know thus I became a comedian <laughs> Charlie was also given many opportunities by his parents but for him the plot turned out differently I was privately educated and I enjoyed school and I was, I was pretty conscientious at school I uh, got good O-levels and went on to do A-levels. But I suppose at university I just kind of, you know, got into sort of left-wing thinking and radical thinking and, you know, parted on a bit, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I just kind of rebelled against my kind of bourgeois background, I suppose. My parents were, you know, always been very kind and supportive for me. They're still together now. And they, and they obviously paid for my private education, maybe expecting me to do something successful in my life or something which they could, would consider better. Um, but I kind of just drifted away from that. My, you know, my dad was chairman of the local conservatives, so it just seemed kind of natural to be kind of a, a rebel, maybe a, a rebel without a clue, but certainly a rebel, and uh, you know, I enjoyed that role. When, like Josh and Jess, you're living in the shadow of your accomplished parent, the need to create your own success can feel all important. When I was in my 20s, I, I think I was, you could say I was in denial about my father's position and the hopes that I had for my career. Um, I found myself in a ridiculous situation of actually lying about my father. People would say to me, oh, are you Eric Fernie's daughter? And I'd say, no, <laughs> which is a bit ridiculous because obviously I look very much like him. Going into comedy, I have always been conscious that the fact is that it is something that is only about how funny you are. Either you get up on stage and people laugh and you get paid or you don't and you don't get paid. And it's that simple. And that's what attracts me to it because any success I get within this world I can I know just a thousand billion percent is all down to ability and hard work. So once your career is underway is there a burning desire to eclipse your parents success? There might be a little bit of competition between us I'm not sure I mean I think she's used to being number one am I competing with her yeah I want to be bigger than her I want to be more well known than her I want to walk into a room and get all the attention before she does sort of thing um but uh is she competing with me she's achieved everything she's you know she is known she she doesn't have anything to prove my father is fantastically generous unassuming um ambitious for himself but not out for any any for an ego trip in any way and i must say that probably radically <laughs> differentiates him from me because I think I'm much more kind of verbose and uh, outgoing and interested in networking and contacts. I think if if my father was really overbearing and um, kind of flamboyant and uh, egotistical, I think I would have found that really hard to compete with. I do remember very vividly going to 
um, a friend's house in my late teens um, in Paris and she was the daughter of an incredibly famous painter and I remember sitting having supper with her and realising there was a drawing behind her of her in her youth playing chess with Samuel Beckett drawn by her father and I thought Christ I couldn't compete with that. Charlie meanwhile who has long abandoned any thoughts of a successful career has to live with knowing he's probably let his parents down. I haven't got sort of some egotistical male thing about oh my word I must be you know, earning more than my dad ever made and blah, blah, blah. And I suppose, obviously, they were disappointed when, you know, I was... I remember at one point I ended up squatting in London doing some sort of community programme thing, and I'm sure it wasn't the best news my mum could tell her friends at a bridge club or something that, you know, her son was, wasn't was a solicitor in the city earning 50k a year, but in fact was squatting on a community programme, whatever. People I grew up with, their parents were equally or more successful or whatever, but I sort of knew as I was growing up, you know, some of them react very badly to that kind of pressure and drugs and and have just almost dropped out of society because they didn't feel like they could in any way compete blimey (laughs) you know what that makes me think it makes you think you never get it right as a parent Mm. (laughs) doesn't matter how hard you try there's always something that goes a bit haywire what did you think fascinating yeah absolutely fascinating the uh I don't know what the pa- I'd love to hear what the parents thought listening to that. I think it's also interesting. That all the, um, apart from Jess, I mean, she kind of has has kind of decided to go along the same route as her father, and I think that's really quite difficult. As you look at like you know the sons of of, um, uh, of people like um, uh, Bob Dylan, you know, then he went off and made his own music, or Sean Lennon, and, and did the same thing. And you kind of think, oh, can't you just try something else? Nobody's ever, you're never going to be as good as that. Don't bother. Just go and try and do something completely different. And I think it must be much harder to go along the same lines as your parents. I would almost definitely do something completely different. Yeah, absolutely. I think. I was, uh, him talking about Lynn Franks, it made me think of Vivian Westwood, who in the same way has that kind of very successful and an sort of enormous personality. And both of her sons have kind of... She has the, the one son, Joe, who did Ajahn Provocateur, and then the other son, who's always in the papers for doing kind of semi-pornographic <laughs> photographs. And now he's doing a menswear line, but they, they, kind of, they kind of are very much in her orbit and trying and sort of having various degrees of success in her world. I guess it's just her, they can't quite escape from... Yeah, there is also that element when you listen to Josh that you kind of think, actually, it's not the fact that you're the son of a successful parent, it's just the fact that you're the son of Lynn Franks. <laughs> she That's is what's a, funny. <laughs> she's a kind of, like, force of nature. It wouldn't really, you know, it doesn't really matter if she's successful or not, she's just Lynn Franks. You, yeah. you know, that's a kind of, you know, even if you were her best friend or her husband, you kind of had to hold on to the coattails of her, I think, really. Yeah, and it is also fascinating that he kind of mentioned the Ab Fab connection, that she's, you know, she is a, a, P, a success as a PR, but she is also kind of inspiration for one of the great sort of comic characters of all time, and he's kind of... Be- followed in those footsteps in a way i suppose the the thing that also that that those clips make me think of is uh the important role of parents of kind of handing things on to their children there's a point where you just have to go you know what it's not about me it's about you you're the you're the next generation off you go kind of thing and it seems perhaps that some of these uh, children felt like their parents weren't doing that yeah i think so i mean i think it's one of those things that you can go either way can't it because you there are always some people who will have very successful parents and sort of in a way blame that for never achieving them anything themselves and then other people who kind of take something from that and can can learn and sort of take a whatever it is an inspiration or a work ethic or something and take that on and, and use that build in their own lives but I wonder if you were a, a, a kind of child of incredibly successful parents if that insecurity could ever go I mean I can't understand 
how you could ever get rid of it unless I suppose you became incredibly successful yourselves yeah I think there would naturally be an element of competition and also just a kind of foreshadowing I think most of us just go out into the world sort of not really having a preconceived idea of what we're going to do and maybe if you come from a have very famous parents everyone you meet has certain expectations of of you and what you're going to be like and what you're going to do and that maybe affects you I guess Now, every month we ask our studio guests to write a short piece for the podcast, which they then read out in front of the class. There's a treat if they've worked very hard. So, Jess, you've written about the rights and wrongs of dressing your children in designer clothes, I think. Fire away. They say that having children profoundly changes your priorities, and it's true. Having kids has changed me so much that my interest in shopping for myself has almost ebbed away. This development might not sound profound to you, but to a fashion editor, this is life-altering stuff. These days, instead of shopping for myself, I buy clothes for my children. In Paris, for Fashion Week recently, the sum total of my fashion purchases were a Liberty Print jumpsuit and a pair of shiny gold metallic American apparel leggings for my three-year-old daughter and a pair of black skinny jeans for my seven-year-old son. And I'm not alone. My local shopping street is full of mums in 30-quid gap jeans holding hands with toddlers in hand-finished, vintage-inspired, limited-edition Irish linen smock dresses or expensively distressed miniature Rolling Stones tour T-shirts. The success of Stella McCartney's collections for gap kids has highlighted a boom in designer clothes for children. Styling up your kids seems all wrong. Children are not, after all, accessories to be coordinated with your outfit. Even I know that. And photos of three-year-old Suri Cruz in her miniature high heels unite us all in outrage. But is it really so terribly bad to take pleasure in how you dress your children? After all, we all do it to an extent. What parent hasn't known the deliciousness of buttoning a freshly scrubbed babe into their best pyjamas? And yes, our children's wear has changed, but this is not necessarily such a bad thing. The way we dress our kids now is a reflection of how we see them as individuals, as people who may be small but have opinions and a sense of humour. Do we really want to go back to a time when children were supposed to be seen and not heard and were dressed accordingly in a dull nursery uniform until they grew up and had something interesting to say? For me, alarm bells start ringing when clothes for kids are too grown up. And not just the obvious horrors of baby girls in bikinis or high heels. When my son was a toddler, the fashion in little boy trousers was for cargo pants. What does an 18-month-old need a hammer loop on his trousers for? And, like many feminist mothers, I am troubled by what seems to be the growing gender stereotyping of children's wear. I was looking through some photos the other day of myself as a little girl at a 1970s birthday party. Only one of the girls at the party is in pink. Several of them are in T-shirts and shorts, whereas every party I take my daughter to seems to be wall-to-wall Disney frocks or puff sleeves and nylon petticoats. And there is something unsettling about dressing your little one as a mini-me, a practice which unites parents as diverse as Katie Price and Jarvis Cocker. It suggests a blurring of the lines which once separated parenthood from childhood. Have we become a generation of parents in denial about the fact that we are now the grown-ups? But still, I love clothes, and the joy of having little people to dress up is just too tempting. My son escapes my clutches these days because when he is not in school uniform, he refuses to be prized out of his Sesc Fabregas sweatshirt. Soon, no doubt, my daughter will flex her will against mine likewise. But today, she is wearing harem pants and high-top trainers, accessorised with scruffy pigtails and a light sprinkling of porridge, her own idea, and she looks fabulous, even if I say so myself. That's lovely. I have to say, I, I was guilty, and I am guilty of putting my son in cargo pants. I'm sorry about that. He quite <laughs> likes them. He thinks it's making him look like Ben 10. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about, um, you mentioned uh, uh, kids in kind of Rolling Stone T-shirts. My husband came back and uh, with a T-shirt for my son, which I did quite like, but I felt slightly weird about, which was a Happy Mondays T-shirt. Now, I'm a big fan of Happy Mondays, and I can name all their LPs, so it's not like I don't know about them. And he looked great in the T-shirt, but he's not a big fan of Happy Mondays. <laughs> I didn't really... I felt kind of weird about it, but then equally he looked really cool. So we've got a Stone Roses T-shirt as well, and, you know... I mean, he does like the old Stone Roses track, but I don't think he could name them. Um, do you think that's appropriate? Am I being bad, Mum? No, I know exactly what you mean. I think it's a real dilemma because I do kind of think that thing that, as a grown-up, I sort of think you shouldn't wear a band T-shirt if you can't name three albums kind of thing. And, and obviously you can't expect you can't do that <laughs> into your kids. <laughs> you I tried so hard. He doesn't know. after me. <laughs> Although um, he likes bummed. <laughs> <laughs> but you know and so in a way you are dressing them as you know it's your it's you who you're dressing there just a smaller cuter version isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. and this surrey cruise thing that's quite weird isn't it i think high heel shoes that that was the first thing that that made me feel very weird about i mean i think it's quite weird that she's in the public eye all the time but high heel shoes on a kid is quite odd isn't it i think it's really odd i mean i just don't know where, i don't know where that's coming from at all i can't think that's not it's it's not even it just looks it just looks totally wrong it's just uh, of all the things that they should just they kids should be running around they just shouldn't be I know place. but that's what seems so weird isn't it you can, you kind of think oh to be honest you might as well put her in calipers she can't do what she wants to do in high heel shoes she's a kid yeah I mean I wasn't allowed out of start right till I was about eighteen so. I know. <laughs> well I know this is another thing that I did I bought my son. He could, he could barely walk. It was his first birthday. He could walk, but you know. And I bought him a pair of white kickers. How sad is that? Just because I really wanted kickers when I was a kid. And my mum bought the Clark substitute, you know, obviously. And uh, so I bought him some white kickers. Completely inappropriate. He didn't care. They were scuffed up within kind of seconds. But I chose to buy £40 shoes for him. It's ridiculous. Now, David Nichols' latest book, One Day, is a runaway bestseller and quite right too, managing to be both clever and funny. Well done. In this month's family playlist, David chooses three tracks which take him from Star Wars through teenage romance to being a parent himself. This is the first album I ever bought by myself with my own money and it's 1977 and punk is in the air and I went out to the shops and I bought uh, Jeff Love and His Orchestra play Big Space Themes and it had... uh, Holst's Mars Bringer of War on it, which very quickly became something that I played over and over again because it was sort of Star Wars-y classical music and it had this great title, which was sort of like Zeus, Killer of Robots or something. It was a fantastically kind of exciting sci-fi title and it felt like film music and I think that's what I, I liked about it. It wasn't that I pretentiously thought that I liked classical music, I just liked big sci-fi film music. Loved Jeff Love, and um, because in my house we didn't really we didn't really listen to much music growing up. My parents we had a record player, but it had ornaments on, and it was a big deal to take the ornaments off and put a piece of of music on. So we weren't immersed in music at all. Certainly not the music of the sixties or seventies. So I was vaguely aware of Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles, but but um, this actually weirdly was the first piece of music that I chose and listened to by myself like everyone of, of my age it was very hard not to be touched 
you know, not to be hugely influenced and affected by Star Wars. Um, I mean, that was the real revolution for me, 77, 78, not, not punk, unfortunately. I, I, it would be a lot cooler if I was a, an 11-year-old punk or into, you know, kraut rock or something, but I was very, very distant from the whole, the whole world of pop music. And which character in Star Wars did you identify with? Well, I, I, Han was cooler, wasn't he? But I think I was, I was sort of Luke uh, through and through. You've got a bit of a look of Luke. Oh, goodness. Um, that has been said before, actually. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, Just blush. <laughs> and, and next up, uh, you've chosen Aretha Franklin. Yes. I mean, when I did start to get into you know, pop and rock music, I had very kind of nerdy tastes. I liked, I liked a lot of sort of prog rock and Kate Bush and a lot of sort of rather pompous, pretentious sort of, I don't know what you call it, prog rock or art rock or something. My first girlfriend was a lot, lot cooler than I, a lot more sophisticated. And she liked a lot of sort of classic soul and Motown. And uh, uh, so it, she, this used to be our song. Um, it was the first time I had our song. And uh, I still love this song to, to this day. It's, it's I Say a Little Prayer by Aretha Franklin. Though I didn't really grow up aware of pop or rock music, I was aware of that kind of light entertainment, Scylla Black, kind of, you know, BBC One Saturday tea time kind of music. The moment I wake up Before I put on my makeup I say a little Poor parents. I used to, you know, get Genesis's The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway or Trespass or something, kind of early Genesis album, and sit in the Parkinol recliner with two drumsticks. I was learning to play the drums at the time. And drum on the arms of the Parkinol recliner. I mean, for hours, you know, for the whole 25-minute length of Supper's Ready uh, on their third album. And, and I was really into this very kind of pompous literary music. So I, I have a great debt to, uh, to Katie for at least introducing a little bit of, of good taste to, to me as a 16-year-old. And a little bit of joy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, no, I, 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 I find it very hard. I mean, this record has been my favourite record for, well, what, are we, what are we talking about now? I suppose 30 years. And, and I'd find it very, very hard to listen to the first three Genesis albums now all the way through. <laughs> OK, and your... Um, your last choice of family record? Well, I have children now, and, and I'm having to fight that thing. I don't know whether it's a male thing, but that very pedantic, annoying thing of trying to educate my children and playing them, you know, Roxy Music's first album and kind of... Asking them to give marks out of ten. <laughs> How old are they? They're four and two. <laughs> so I don't want to get there too early, you know? I don't want to be playing kind of, you know... Uh, sort of very difficult sort of talking heads albums or something. I think you need to work up to that. My my daughter's favorite record by far is is Single Ladies by by Beyonce, and she's two years old. And I'm really not sure about the, the gender politics of that or whether she should be listening to it. But she loves. If it's any consolation, my four year old son is really into that song as well. Yeah, I think it has a kind of sing song nursery rhyme quality that they really that they really love and my, my son loves gorillas uh, I think because they're a cartoon band and the, again he likes the, the sort of cartoon big bold kind of quality of it and he likes the kinks but the only thing that, that they both really love uh, is uh, the Beatles and um, 
They really like Here Comes the Sun. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's all right. So uh, that's what my, my children love, and that's, that's something that we can all listen to without, without the parents going crazy. Without arguments in the car. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of acceptable to everyone. And um, this is quite a parenty question. Um, you said that you quite like to educate your children. <laughs> what are the things you feel like you need to teach them? Well, I've, I, again, it's with film, uh, films. I'm very keen that they kind of work through the classics. <laughs> and I don't want to get there too early. But uh, two, my son loved his favourite film was Singing in the Rain. And, you know, that's a fine film. Have you tried Alvin and the Chipmunks? The Squeakquel? We have. And the cover version of uh, Beyonce in that gets played quite a lot on, on YouTube. <laughs> we, again, it's not a film we've seen all the way through. One day. And a blatant plug for his new book from David Nichols there with his family playlist. Now, this is a tricky one, possibly the trickiest of the lot. What do you do when you think your friend's child is a monster? Speak out, hold your tongue or never see them again. Well, I think I can name and shame a friend of mine, Toby who has two children, one called Michelle, is just the most sweetest thing going. And then he has a son, who basically I should really call Chucky, because I think he was born in hell. I just think he's the most obscene child that's ever walked this planet. There are some of my friend's children that I'm not madly keen on, but I think that we've all been very clever with our social engineering and have cut the wheat from the chaff rather rather ruthlessly so I just don't have children I don't like in my house I do have an experience of a friend who's got um, a rather horrible little son and uh, we went to stay with him unfortunately he's he's an only child and therefore it's only his him and his mum in a unit and the grandmother and they all live in one big house so all his needs are attended to very carefully by these two matriarchs so when we turn up, me and my kids are to stay with them, he's particularly not happy How can I best explain Chucky? That's not his real name but it should be his real name Chucky will start throwing his food at everybody saying he doesn't like this, doesn't like that you hear him swearing at his mother and father any time they decide not to put the TV on. On one incident, he locked us all in the bathroom um, <laughs> and hid our clothes. Basically, we'll be having a conversation with the family. He'll pick up an aeroplane and start throwing it at my head. There were only certain bikes that suited certain children in the family, and obviously they all belonged to him. And uh, he wouldn't allow us to ride the bikes that matched us. So my daughter was on a great big one. I was on like a little chopper with my knees around my ears. Um, and we had to take a scenic bike ride <laughs> around the local town on mismatched bikes. Other things would be basically scratching my friend's car and laughing about it and thinking it's just like a normal thing. I'm lucky in that my children's main group is 
friends come from a, a group of five mums and we're all really, really close friends. We talk about each other's children all the time, so we do kind of bring up antisocial behaviour and are quite brutally honest, I think. Regarding our friendship and everything, I think the great thing about me and Toby, we can talk about anything. But if it gets to the point where you happen to have a kid who's a cross between Johnny Rotten and Mad Max, there has to be a point where you've got to be able to say to them, you know, your kid's a freak, you've got to do something about it. Any parent knows, any parent particularly mothers are highly aware of it so it's a very sensitive issue and I think whether you bring it up with the mother is a lot to do with your relationship with the mother how close you are with them and I think sometimes in those situations I've often just ignored it and tried not to make the situation worse. It's not like the fact I haven't told my friend that I hate one of his children. I've basically told the child himself, while both the parents are there, that he is evil, and that if he intends to come anywhere nearer than me, I'm going to drive him to some dark place in Hackney and leave him in a state so he can get his ass kicked because he's obscene. So how does that make you feel, Jess? <laughs> wow, that's that's quite fun on, isn't it? Um, I was thinking, before this, I was thinking, well, no, all my friends have lovely kids, and I now feel really grateful having listened to that, because it sounds like there's some uh, some horrors out there. But I also, you can't help thinking listening to that. I don't know, can you, I don't know how old these children are, but it seems, there seems something not quite right about hating a child you know I just sort of I just don't as, a, as for an adult to be I mean you know amongst your 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 children and, and other children get on or don't get on but I kind of not sure that I think I feel comfortable with the idea of just thinking I, I, I hate you I don't like you to a, to a child yeah I mean what it made me think in uh, the occasions <laughs> the occasions that were mentioned is one locking people in the bathroom is quite funny mm. I did think that <laughs> and I also thought forcing people to go on the wrong size bikes pretty funny He's got a good sense of humour. I think it's really, um, it's one of those things that will either glue you together with your friends or drive you apart in a way that, mm. you know, our friends that that have children the same age and we are kind of like an extended family, it, part of that is probably that we have pretty much the same, roughly, you know, everyone has their own kind of variations, but you have roughly the same ideas on, on, on discipline and kind of what is isn't isn't acceptable and what, yeah. what we can and kind of let them do. Have you ever been in that situation where um, you've got a, another child round and you just, it's not like you hate them and it's not like they're kind of trying to stab your, stab your eye with a pen. It's just they're a bit whingy or they kind of get on your nerves. I mean, how do you get over that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of inevitable, isn't it, as human beings? There are some of them who you all just kind of hit it off with and I think that happens the same even when it's a three-year-old. Some of them you just relate to more than others, but... When you know their parents, you kind of have a sort of emotional connection to them. But when it's 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 just someone who's come back from drama, then it's uh, then you just kind of meet this little person, you react to their personality, and you know I think that's fair enough, really. Only human, yeah. even when you're grown up, <laughs> you just think, yeah, they can come around maybe in about a year. <laughs> they didn't like my fish fingers. They're not coming back. <laughs> okay well that's it for this month's family podcast thanks to Jess Cartner Morley and to David Nichols. remember if you've got any family dramas or stories you'd like to share with us on the show don't forget to add your comments on the family blog at guardian.co.uk and of course don't miss the brilliant family section in Saturday's Guardian from me Miranda Sawyer and my producer Sarah Peters goodbye
Now it's the next instalment of the Children's Guide to Bringing Up Parents, brought to you by JUMP, the savings fund for children. Today, creating clear boundaries. That's right, Becky. To ensure healthy development, parents have to understand there is a clear dividing line between right and wrong, and they must know what will happen if they cross it. Too true, Alexander. Take bedtime. Sending us off before 10pm is not acceptable, and neither is waking us up before 10am at weekends, unless it's our birthday. Then there's the question of spending hours and hours in front of the computer screen. Most parents do far too much of this. However, they may spend as long as they like at jumpsavings.com, setting up savings accounts that will turn into tidy little sums for when we're older. Show your approval by praising them for it. Not too much, mind. You don't want to spoil them. Find out more about Jump, the savings fund for children, at www.jumpsavings.com. As Jump is an equity investment in Witten Investment Trust PLC, please remember that past performance is not a guide to future performance, and the value of your shares and the income from them can rise and fall, so you may not get back the amount originally invested. Issued and approved by Witten Investment Services Limited, registered in England number 5272533 of 201 Bishopsgate, London, EC2M3AE. Witten Investment Services Limited provides investment products and services and is authorised and regulated by the Financial Services Authority. Calls may be recorded for our mutual protection and to improve customer service.